Welcome to ESIP's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Eriksson and I am joined today by Prince Michael of Liechtenstein. Prince Michael is a businessman and thinker and he splits his time between businesses that he is engaged in and organizations that aim to deepen our understanding of society like the International Institute of Longevity and the European Center of Austrian Economics Foundation based in Vaduz. He's also the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Intelligence Service, an advisory firm that provides geopolitical analysis and forecasts to clients around the world. And it is our current geopolitical trends that I'm going to talk to Prince Michael about. Prince Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you and good morning. Good morning indeed. I would like us to start our conversation with the United States. What would you say is the geopolitical significance of the United States now? We have President Biden declaring that America is back. But many observers of foreign policy and international affairs would say that America's decline from geopolitical dominance has been going on for a long period now. In this view, President Trump didn't change the direction of US international policy. He just accelerated its pace. Yet, America is still the leading world economy and by far the strongest military power in the world. And even if it isn't aspiring to resume the role it had in the 1990s, what was called the unipolar moment, America will be the most influential country in shaping global outcomes. And it will be far more influential than any other power in the world. So how do you see America balancing the opposing forces of being, on the one hand, the strongest power in the world, and on the other hand, that it accepts that it's not longer a unipolar moment in the world? I think I wouldn't say, and it was mentioned one, that certain people are saying that America is in decline. I think this is not the case. But if we look back the last 30 years, actually, when when the collapse of the Soviet Union happened, you very well said America was sort of the unipolar hegemon in the world. One talked about the end of history. The democratic system will, be, will, will go all, all over the world. And this was maybe a bit naive to do that because we know that changes happening constantly. And also America is not necessarily in decline. We see the rise of other powers want to play a bigger role in the in the global play and especially of china who is really challenging the u.s hegemony and wants to become a hegemon at least as powerful as the united states historically i think such developments are totally normal and if we look back in history we can see that the sort of a rise and the fall or maybe not necessarily a fall, but the rise of new powers and changes. The normal structure in geopolitics is not stability, but it's change. And this we we have to face. And actually, as you said as well, uh, this uh, policy didn't start with uh, President Trump. But I think President Trump, he really clearly realized it. And... As President Biden now has the slogan, America is back, I think in the Trump time it was the slogan to make America great again. And I think there was a a realization that 
one doesn't need only military strengths or a very advantageous geopolitical position, which is geographically the U.S., if we want, is some sort of an island. It's protected by oceans from both sides. But that's not sufficient. And one of the core things, and the most important one, is a very strong, healthy economy. Yes, indeed. And I think it was that combination of a strong economy and a strong military that led the way for America to get that dominant position and bringing along Europe and many other countries into an alliance that helped to shape outcomes in the world in the post-war period. So now we have another country on the rise, also with a strong economy, and I'm talking about China, and also with an increasingly strong military. Do you think it's inevitable that an old power like America and a rising power like China, that they will end up in conflict? Well, I think they will, they will end up in, uh, they necessarily have conflicts because naturally an old hegemon wants to keep its position and the new hegemon is challenging it. Now, what does it mean to be in conflict? You can have a rivalry in economics terms and, to, and trade, which, which we have now. We can have saber rattling, which we also have now. Now, it does not necessarily lead to, hopefully not necessarily lead to war, but it is a bit preoccupying, the situation, if we take it as an analogy to the early 20th century, when actually Germany challenged the British hegemony, and which was basically the reason for the breakout of World War I. So one has to be very careful. But I think what looks now that is more happening, that there will be a fragmentation. For the US, they have, besides economic power, besides military power, they have also the advantage that the dollar is the world leading currency. So they have a certain monetary do dominance. We know that China wants to break out of that. And it could be that we are again coming in some sort of a bipolar system where China tries to get an autonomy also in the monetary, in the trade side, etc. And we can already see that China prepares for that. If we look at the double circular economy that they are preparing, they want to become a lot more autonomous and being prepared for a, a conflict but which not necessarily has to be uh, military. But the preoccupying way is that we can't exclude that uh, a military conflict could, uh, could break out. And that fragmentation that you're talking about and the, the rise of a bipolar type of system, would that also include other areas? If we take, for instance, uh, technology, there seems to be sort of growing frictions around technology, market access for technological product. There is a race for who invents the new type of technologies that will you know, power our energy grids in the future or that is going to lead to good, better batteries in electric cars, etc. So what do you think the battlefields are going to be in this fragmentation? So you, you mentioned currencies, the trade system. Can we also look at a few other battlefields? Yeah. Yes, well, I think, as you said, technology will, will certainly be, uh, be something. 
China wants to have, and it is clear, a leadership. We also see, you know, with a 5G discussion and Huawei, there is already a conflict going on. I think we might also see it on the development also in the, in the, health, um, in the health and life science area. I think also there we could have it. And, you know, we already talk, if we see the people being worried and they talk about a vaccine colonization by China and Russia in certain countries of the Balkans. So there are starts and this will go into many spheres. It's also the question of the Belt and Road Initiative. I think China tries to get allies there up to satellites. So this conflict go on. I think they will be in technology, it will be in science, it will be monetary, trade, but also, uh, let's say, geographically and geopolitically. You mentioned the Belt and Road, and this was actually one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you as well, which is on the shaping of new forms alliances and perhaps what countries that may become if not casualties, so at least severely affected by the rise of a new bipolar system where America and China competes for influence in different parts of the world. So if we, we're going to come to Europe a little bit later, but if we think about the Pacific region itself and how you see alliances shaping up there, what do you think will be the response from other countries in the region to the growing dominance of China. We have larger economies or larger countries like India and Japan that, of course, have more opportunities to outline their own way, uh, but there are also plenty of other smaller economies and smaller nations that probably will have great difficulties of balancing this new situation. On the one hand, wanting a closer relation to America. On the other hand, being dragged in to the maelstrom of China's economy and its broader strategy for the Asian region? You know, I think we see already certain types of that. If we look, let's say, at the Pacific countries, and they include Japan, but the Philippines, Indonesia, and then Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, etc., down to South Asia, India, they are all concerned with the political rise and the more assertive way of China acting. And it is true that, or maybe it is close to thinking, that China sees itself the hegemon in this area. We also see that with the claims in the South China Sea. So this is a threat, let's say, to the sovereignty of these countries. But on the other side, China is their biggest trading partner. So they have to balance that, their economic interests, with questions of sovereignty. So actually, for the questions of sovereignty, they have to be pretty closely aligned with the United States, because that's the only military power who can give them the, the backup. But on the other side, they have to maintain their trade relationship with China. This is a difficulty which happens uh, there. And... I think this will be an interesting field to watch over the next years. And they try to balance that, but it will be interesting how, how, that, how that develops and how also China will there not only use their military presence, but also their economic strengths to put pressure on these countries. 
there is this concept in international relations, at least international relations theory. I don't know if we can say it's also a concept in practice, but it's about Eastphalia, basically taking the concept of Westphalia into the yeah. Asian region and uh, looking at the development there that may have similarities to what we witnessed in, in Europe from the 17th century onwards. Do you think this is a realistic form of scenario or will there have to be stronger alliances between other Asian countries in order to accommodate some of the problems they are going to be confronted with by a strong China? I think I rather believe in the second one because, you know, also the, the Westphalian system, well, it, it worked for a while, but there were always dominating powers who were influencing and using the, the, the smaller ones. And I think there in the East Asian thing, there are some pretty strong powers, Japan, India, Indonesia, etc. And I think they will rather, and what we see, that they will rather stick together and try to find common policies towards, actually common policies with the US on one side and towards China on the other side. Yeah, indeed. A, a final question on China before we're going to move on more to Europe. I wanted to ask you about the relations between China and Russia, whether you see there is the possibility of an alliance rising between them, or if differences and frictions and the fact that they are on different trajectories in terms of their future power, if that is going to make it impossible to have more of a, an equal type of alliance partnership between China and Russia. Well, I, I think it is possible, I'm, and I'm, I'm coming back. It's, there's certainly no love affair between uh, Russia and China. There has never been, and it, it doesn't look like uh, being, uh, being a love affair. But there could be, let's say, a partnership of convenience. And I think this is, unfortunately, quite likely. And I think it's now, it should be a priority at the moment, as well for the European powers as for the United States to find a better modus vivendi with Russia. Because what happens now with actually this policy of um, sanctions, of looking down on Russia, and actually also some Russia bashing, which we can hear also in the inaugural address of President Biden, uh, it will force actually Russia in something like a junior partnership with China. And that's certainly something which the democratic West cannot hope for. So let's come to Europe, but I'm going to start with, it, it's actually a question, but the first question I think I'd like to ask is, is about America. I think many in Europe has interpreted President Biden and his statement that America is back as a vindication or at least a, a signal that it's going to be a lot more easier to deal with America uh, in the future and that America wants to preserve its role in Europe, strengthen the alliance with Europe. Do you think that interpretation of President Biden is correct? Well, I think in essence, the changes will not be uh, too big. There will certainly be a change in style and it might be easier with uh, certain talks and friendlier. But also President Trump or the American policy, you know, the American president is not all powerful. There's a machinery and there are necessities which are remaining. 
I think also the Trump administration was interested in Europe, but he put, let's say, the, the interest more to Central Europe in countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, let's say closer to the eastern border of, of, of Europe. Now, certainly Europe remains, let's say, the wished for main ally of the United States. And I think this will not change, but I think in a more friendly way, also the Biden administration will request from Europe to do more in defense, to also, I don't think there will be too many changes also in, in, in the trade relationships. So this will go on, but I think it might be, certain things might be on a sort of less clear, less outspoken and more friendly way. Let's talk a little bit more about Europe then and some of the issues that may also have consequences for the relationship with America. I wanted to talk about this new drive in Europe for European sovereignty, which is in a way a new strategic concept of geopolitical autonomy, but it's also backed up by an economic policy aiming to reduce Europe's dependence on America and the rest of the world and perhaps reduce the dependence especially on American technology and the global technological order that we have right now. Do you think this is the right ambition for Europe and do you think it can be achieved? Well, I, I think it's, it's the right thing to do. It's not the, the right objective. I think we should look that Europe develops new things in, in technology, etc., but not necessarily as a competition to the United States. I think this is the wrong way of doing it. I think what Europe needs to do is actually improve their um, framework for innovation and new companies. And I think instead of making big plans, etc., or pumping billions into the economy, I think it would be a better way to reduce the role of government, of the different governments, and reduce also regulations. And I think what, what is a problematic in Europe is that, well, the whole world is now overregulated, but, but Europe especially. So I don't think this is a movement which you can't start, let's say, with the European Union or with national governments. It's something looking at the general, I would say, economic policies and regulatory framework. My take would be, and I want to test this one on, on you, Prince Michael, my take would be also that, I mean, first of all, I agree with exactly what you were saying right now, but in terms of geopolitics and where it, the economy comes into it, it is very much about the strength and the dynamism of your own economy. You're not going to be sort of an autonomous economy that generates a lot of new technology, many new innovations, just by you know, declaring that you now want to be sovereign. The way you're going to become it, it's, it's a bottom-up process where your economy becomes so interesting from the rest of the world that they're going to start to pay attention to you. So I find it sometimes a bit difficult to square these two different worldviews, which is on the one hand, you have people talking about the case for economic sovereignty. And on the other hand, we're not really seeing that the European economy moves in the direction of becoming a lot more 
technology-driven, technology-generating in the sense that it can compete globally uh, with other countries about inventing the future. I agree with that, and I think that's why we need to do measures to get more innovations, new, uh, new companies, etc. And we might also get a leadership, maybe not in technology, but maybe a leadership in biotech, uh, life science, health, etc. You know, I think we have to see, let's put it away, uh, not, and this is actually a bit even a mercantilistic thinking, we get a, a European sovereignty. It will, as you said, it will always be an economy in the world economy. And I think what it needs to be that Europe becomes a strong, successful economic and economic power, and also being through the economic power, also able to invest more in, let's say, in, in defense, so that Europe wouldn't need to be able to operate worldwide, but at least being also sovereign in deterrence against attacks. So I think the key is actually give room to business to really develop and not increase still the share of governments in the economy. Yep, indeed. Talking more about Europe, I mean, our economy now, like other economies around the world, have of course been negatively affected by the pandemic mm. and the restrictions we have. Euro economies have dropped between 8 and 10% in 2020. And even if there's going to be a recovery this year and next year, the long-term expectation for European growth is actually pretty dismal reading. Forecasts suggest that our long-term growth is in the region of 1% to 1.5%. And it's also a development that will be weighed down by fiscal stress coming from all the deficits and debts we have. And of course, by the demographic development that isn't helping economic dynamism. What would you say are the underlying causes for poor economic expectations in Europe? And what do you think Europe can do to turn it around? Well, you see, I'm... I'm a businessman, and therefore I see certain uh, problems. We have, in Europe, huge economic overheads. The cost of uh, regulations, of compliance, etc., becomes enormous. We have also two big public administrations. And these are actually a lot of, I would say, unproductive uh, businesses. And certainly, we, we, we need the state. Certainly, we, we need also people who look after the, the compliance. But, but we have too much about that. And if I look at our economies, I have sometimes the impression that our European economies would be like if I have a manufacturing company, but more than 50% of my employees would be in accounting and controlling, and only a small part would be in production and sales. Do you think Europe here is different from, say, America or other parts of the world? I think other parts of the world also going this direction, which actually is a concern for me for the whole, let's say, prosperity in the world and that we are going on on the drive to have less poverty, etc., where we should go, because the more state we have in the world, 
unless we have it. But I think Europe, being a very sophisticated place, is even more affected by that. And what would you say about the climate of economic ideas today? My reading of the debate right now is that there are lots of different economic ideologues that are making the case that the pandemic itself and the political responses to it show that we need to bring back the state into the economy as if the state wasn't already there. I, I fully agree. This is very dangerous that actually the fought for problems are put rather to the market than to the state. And I think if one has a problem, one shouldn't look who's faulted it, but how can we fix it? And the state can help short-term in things, but the state is not a solution for that. The solution has to come from people and from the business. So I think the state can't do that. And we know it, the more an economy gets planned, the more vulnerable it becomes because it, there are clusters, there, there are risks there. I think what I didn't say in the last thing, what is also a problem in Europe compared to the US is that Europe is not very tolerant towards people who fail. Let's say you start a new business and you fail, you get rarely a second chance. In the US, it's totally accepted that, that you fail. I think this fear before risk is a European disease, which um, also, you know, whenever you do something, there's a risk of failure. But you have to do something if you want to progress. Indeed. And you want to learn from failures, so you avoid okay. doing them again in the future, right? Exactly, yeah. So in this balance then between that we have in Europe between, on the one hand, we have national govern, governments in, in our countries, and on the other hand, we have a European Union uh, with institutions there to also shape economic policies. How do you see that balance developing in the future? We have now a new initiative called the Next Generation, the EU, which means that the European Commission is going to take up debt in order to help finance investments around Europe. It's, it's more or less sort of a, an instrument to help economies that have struggled during the pandemic. And of course, most of these economies struggled before the pandemic as well. Do you see this as a first step to some kind of a, a European state which has all these sort of Keynesian instruments with macroeconomic business cycle management policies, new fiscal power to support economies that uh, are declining? Or do you think sort of that the opposition to this trend is so big in Europe that we are probably not going to see a continuation of it after next generation EU? You know, I must even say I'm nearly afraid it is going to happen. You know, if this European budget would be just a one-time thing to cover the, the problem of the pandemic, I wouldn't have anything against it. But I think it might become institutionalized. And then we will get, uh, besides having the national sort of guiding of the economies, we would have also a European guidance of the economies. And I don't think it's a good idea because I think the importance for Europe and the strengths of Europe is the difference between the different regions. 
and countries. And I think we, we are much stronger if we have a real competition between also in certain regulatory measures, which then force countries to improve, than having a central institutions which makes transfers, which tries to, to be arbitrary on differences under the pretext of justice. And I think this is pretty dangerous into getting a really planned economy. And we know from history that planned economies don't work. And really, finally, finally now, Prince Michael, I, I wanted also to ask you, which is, of course, a very big question and it's difficult to answer, but it is around what we just talked about and how we see the development shaping up here in especially the Eurozone. My take would be that countries like, for instance, Italy, even if I don't want to fall into the trap of having sort of a path-dependent view suggesting that nothing can change, I sometimes struggle to see how you could bring about change in an an economy like the Italian economy with very, very high public debt, an economy that quite often over the past decade has balanced on that fine line between fiscally solid and basically fiscally bankrupt. I mean, how is this going to change for the better in the future? Is is, Is that a possibility at all? Or do we do we rather see a development where these problems are just going to be exacerbated and we're going to have even bigger problems with sort of fiscally stressed countries in Europe? You know, I'm, I'm afraid we have it. And if we take the example of Italy, Italy had always a quite good economy, good industrial companies, hardworking people, and a population savings. And... Uh, Italian economy worked for a long time, not because of the government and because of Rome, but despite the government and despite Rome. And I think the the problem there is, again, an oversized state. I think also much more regional autonomies inside Italy and allowing them more strength, more power without this strong central power from Rome would help to, to develop, or not to develop the country, but, but help the country to work more efficiently. And I think it's, it's actually Italy, let's say the disease or the problem of Italy, is the strong central state. Prince Michael, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation.